Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas. Ice House is blaring on the stereo. It's humid and dangerous. And a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, Dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980. And each week, we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book. And Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins. Every week I sit down with Dad and talk about, you know, cases that he lived through while he was a cop in the 80s. We're going through my book, Loose Units, and we're kind of reaching the pointy end of the book, by which I mean the cases that hit the hardest. I'm currently recording this podcast, Dad, as you know, sitting across from a railway station, watching trains, you know, kind of idle as they drive past. And they're really just big. I mean, they're fucking huge. These things just weigh a ton. And, you know, day in, day out, I'm kind of watching them go past. And I was looking through the chapter for this morning's story. And I was struck by the kind of irony, the dramatic irony of the fact that we're reading chapter 36 today, and that is track work. Now, this chapter is very difficult emotionally, I think this is the one that upset mum the most when she read the book. I mean, how, how would you describe this story? How would you set this story up? So first, just before we begin this chapter, there is one thing in here that I want to quickly mention. So it begins with dad being, pe- here's the thing, dad understandably doesn't remember the names of every single person he worked with. And I needed a name for the person, for the like junior officer he was partnered with on this kind of fateful night. And so... I wanted to give a nod to my father-in-law, Kevin, and he goes by Kevo. So the, the, if you read Kevo in the book and you're like, who is that guy? It's just, I mean, it's an officer that dad doesn't really remember, but he knows who was rostered on with someone. And I wanted to give a nod to my father-in-law. So that's that's why he's called Kevo. Anyway, it basically is, this whole thing takes place several hundred meters outside St. Leonard's railway station over in Sydney. The interesting thing about this case is that you said there was something that was happening earlier that night. Uh, that isn't, I think, in the book. Now, it was mm. to do with uh, a, a some poultry and some mm. explosives. Is that correct? Mm. I mean, the fact that, okay, here's, here's, here's what I think. You know when you're doing shift work and at the start of the shift, you have a certain level of ability to cope with things. And then as the shift wears you down, you kind of get more and more exhausted. The fact that this chapter's story takes place, you know, later in a shift when you've already kind of had your reserves depleted a bit is important to me. Mm. Hmm. Well, look, um, it was an afternoon shift. So, you know, as all 
hopefully all the listeners know that the afternoon shift went from 3pm to 11pm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at North Sydney Police Station, a very, very busy station. It was midweek, perhaps towards the latter part of the week, maybe a Thursday night. Um, yeah, it was it was busy. It was, um, you know, you got the Pacific Highway, which is, you know, the number one road, well, definitely in New South Wales. It um, it's a it's a major highway, and it sort of terminates pretty well outside the police station. Mm. So you, you just get all. It's sort of a filter. And um, I was the senior man, hopped in the car, and our first job of that particular shift. Now it's fairly unusual, or I dare say very unusual to to remember things with such specific detail mm-hmm. however the the, the the sort of the preamble to as to the big event um was that we received a call from an advertising agency in st leonard's which is a suburb within our patrol and this particular advertising agency had received a an uncooked chicken so kind of like a chicken you'd buy in a supermarket, the whole chicken but not didn't have sort of feathers on it, mm-hmm. so it was ready to go in the oven. It was soft, but what they'd done, they had inserted a what looked like a stick of gelignite into its cloaca. Would you call it a cloaca? Yeah, the egg hole. Yeah, <clears throat> The egg hole. Um, if the chicken had have been alive at the time, it probably would have been fairly painful. Right. But it was as it was just sort of a... You know, a, well, the, you know the, the type of chicken ready to go into the oven. Mm-hmm. It was devoid of emotion, I assume, and it was a stunt in this particular um, in the world of advertising, particularly back in the eighties. You know, they were always trying to sort of one up each other, and it was all very sort of frenetic. And they'd received this um, chicken with what appeared to be a stick of gelignite inserted into it, and they took it as a threat. So they called the police, they, they got in touch with North Sydney and we responded and we went to this advertising agency, I remember we parked outside, went up the stairs, mm-hmm. checked the chicken out, chicken was deceased, um, stick of gelignite was not gelignite, <laughs> okay. it, was just a, it, was just a, it was just a sort of a bit of a, a prank Right. and everything was, was sweet. So, but that was sort of the, that was sort of a light-hearted moment on that particular shift where that set the stage i hoped for a fairly you know fairly chilled shift um then over the uh police radio vkg now it was winter time because the sun was setting and it was around about it was peak hour mm-hmm so let's imagine it was between, say, 5 and 6 p.m. Okay. Towards the end of the week, winter, um, you know, people are wanting to get home. And we had a call to say that there was a report of a train between Wollstonecraft and St. Leonard's that had stopped somewhere between which is unusual, particularly bearing in mind that it's peak hour. And these trains, these double-decker Sydney trains, were packed to the gunnels. So we drove, we did a Yui on the Pacific Highway, started heading down towards 
St. Leonard's, which is kind of near Royal North Shore Hospital, which is a very big hospital in sort of the lower North Shore of Sydney. And there's a rail bridge. So if you're travelling on the highway, you drive over the, the train tracks. And those train tracks, if you were to sort of hop on that, a train on those tracks, it'll either take you into the city or it'll take you all the way up north and it'll actually take you, believe it or not, it'll take you out of Sydney and up to Newcastle. It can even take you up into Queensland. That's the sort of the track situation. Mm-hmm. And these were electric trains on this particular track. Now, as we came down the highway, we noticed that there were a couple of people literally sort of putting their lives in what I would describe as as a fair bit of danger. They were literally jumping out in front of cars on the Pacific Highway, <clears throat> which is a six-lane highway, and they were sort of we could visibly see that they were trying to get our attention and they were signalling for us to turn and go down this particular street. Right. That particular street is called Christie Street. And the driver, my driver, he sort of slowed down, turned left. We drove down this fairly quiet street and on the right-hand side of the street is an embankment. And... The embankment goes up to a railway track. There are two tracks, one northbound, one southbound. So we pulled up and I looked up and the sun was starting to go down. Mm. And I could see this massive train from memory. It had eight carriages and it was just stopped in the middle of literally nowhere for no rhyme, no reason. So I said to my my partner, I said, you stay with the car. I'm going to go and check out the situation. So I had to jump through a uh, or climb through a fence, um, made my way up the embankment to the actual track. So the track, you've got track, you've got the... Um, you know, the wooden, the, the beams, and you've got large chunks of blue metal. That's fairly mm-hmm. standard for, for railway tracks. And then I looked up. I'm, I'm literally standing next to the train. And I'm looking into the train, and all these people that are just sitting there, they obviously realise, A, the train stopped, B, it hasn't stopped at a station, which is really quite surreal. And they're all looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and I'm just thinking, okay. And then when I look back on this particular story, Paul, I kind of think to myself that I probably did a few things that were a little bit crazy and dangerous. Right. I'm, I'm actually on a train track. And I'm thinking, I wasn't thinking at the time about my own personal safety. Well, just quickly, like what is the actual... If a police officer arrives, there is a train stopped, you know, a couple of hundred meters away from a station. Everyone's acting a little weird. You've been called down in a kind of urgent kind of vibe by, uh, you know, bystanders going quick. We need, we need you down here. At mm. this point, first of all, did you know what was going on? Did no. you have any idea? Yeah. Zero. Okay. I had no and, idea whatsoever. But 
but not knowing what was going on, then how are you supposed to proceed as an officer? What are your actual, you know, what are you meant to do? Well, <clears throat> my job as the sun was going down was to determine as best I could why a train would stop in the middle of nowhere during peak hour for no apparent reason. I've been called. I'm the only police officer at the scene. My mate's down sort of with the car, waiting. There were no sirens. There were no no fireys, no ambos, no nothing. It's just quiet. Sun going down. I'm looking at this monstrous train and I'm, I'm walking along and I'm walking towards the driver. And eventually I get to the front of the train and I just look up at this driver and he, and I'm not sure whether this is in the book, Paul, but he was just sitting in a catatonic state. He, he, he was motionless, he was white-faced and he was non-responsive. He was alive, but he was clearly in shock. And at that point, I started walking back and I'm looking down on the track and these wheels of these electric trains, they're big wheels. These trains weigh hundreds and hundreds of tons. Mm. And I heard someone kind of not so much screaming but moaning fairly loudly and but I decided to get down on my hands and knees and I started to I actually got underneath the train when I think back at what I was doing the most terrible thing would have been for another train to have come along and hit this train um, obviously I wouldn't be here today right train tracks the blue metal the sleepers everything is filthy it's black. It's like covered in. It's just. It's disgusting. It's like being in a coal mine. Everything you touch, it just transfers this black dust mm. to you. There am I in full police uniform on my hands and knees crawling underneath a huge train. I mean, even in a hundred percent daylight, I would have had a bit of light. But this was the sun was really, really starting to really fade away so it was really difficult for me to see i had a torch which is good a very powerful torch and as i'm making my way underneath so if you can imagine i'm underneath the train and i've got the wheels i'm between the wheels and i could hear this this voice and i began to realize that it was indeed a female and i just i didn't kind of feel scared or creeped out or I just was it was just an absolute professional mode crawling along and I've I've got one hand my right hand holding the torch and I'm sort of making my way and then I began to focus very specifically as, as to where this particular noise was coming from and it was clearly a woman and then the, the scene began to, um, so just for the listeners, I'm sort of sitting here, my eyes are closed, so I'm really getting right into the thick nitty-gritty specifics of this story. So because I realised there was a person underneath the train, I was looking for A, the person, but 
I was looking for signs because I'd kind of figured that obviously something pretty bad's happened. But the person, the fact that this lady was still alive was, was a very positive thing. But then I remember uh, shining the torch and I'm not sure whether I saw her face with white eyes looking straight at me or her hands that were black and covered in blood. So a combination of sort of black blood, like the, the blood oozing through the dirt. And she was scratching at the massive wheel and she was literally clawing. And I could hear her fingernails as she drove her nails down the wheel, obviously in desperation to get the fucking wheel off her body. And one of the most confronting things that I saw, well, I saw a lot of really bad things. One thing that I saw that was terrible was that I looked at her body and it was very confusing and complicated and it was difficult for me to actually fathom what I was looking at because it didn't make sense. Um, One thing that I remember very distinctly as I sit here was that her intestines, so her large and small intestines, were not inside her body. They were neatly packed between her body, her torso and me. And they were sitting there. Um, See, the thing about intestines, listeners, is that when you remove intestines from a body, see, they're so neatly packed in, but when you pull them all out, if you try and put them all back in, it's going to be really difficult. They sort of increase in volume. I guess what I'm asking is, okay, if the injury that's happened to her is that she has been okay, so what, like she's she's been cut in half, yes. Mm. Mm. Um, how did the intestines get there? I mean, if she's been spun around, 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 surely they would be flung everywhere. Surely they wouldn't just pile neatly next to her, right? Okay, Paul. Well, I I imagine that she had have spun for a little while. The reason I say that is that a lot of her skull was missing so I could actually now remember she's she's fairly lucid I was kind of having a conversation with her I'm not sure whether the conversation was two-way but I do know that she was she had a look of terror on her face she was very scared she she would have realized um, her predicament she would have realised that there was a human being next to her so I'm sort of kneeling down very close to her but all her intestines were covered in dust Okay, imagine getting a sausage and throwing it imagine, imagine you've had a fire like a, a campfire you go back the next day and it's cold and there's just the ash in the bottom of the fire and you get a sausage, and you just throw the sausage into the ash. That is exactly what her intestines looked like. They were just covered in this, in this kind of fine black dirt. 
The thing that had made me think that she'd spun a little bit was that a lot of her skull was just not there, but I could see her brain, which I found kind of fascinating, um, but not in a macabre way, in a sort of a... Just, I was just quite curious that someone who had sustained so many different injuries. Another thing that was really weird, Paul, is that her clothes had been completely ripped off and sort of wrapped around bones and it was just it was just hideous. But I, I distinctly recall seeing her naked bottom sticking up in the same direction as her torso. So her lower half of her body had actually done at least one 180-degree turn. So I've got a situation where she's pretty well naked, her brain's exposed, she's clawing. Um, like I, and when I say clawing, I mean she was, you know, quite aware of her predicament and sort of looking at me in this sort of terrible... Um, look, it was just fucked. It's really heavy. It's probably... I think it's... I'm just trying to think if it's the worst thing I've ever seen. But the fact that she was alive... Because most emergency service personnel that go to something like this, the person is is dead. But on this particular occasion... But not only was she alive and relatively lucid, the wheel that was on top of her had cauterized a lot of the her injuries. So she actually, from my perspective, and with me sort of shining my torch down on her, I had gleaned that she was relatively stable. Mm-hmm. And this wheel had cauterized basically... Well, it's so weird, isn't it? It was sort of literally had sort of squashed all her arteries and veins and she basically just wasn't to be clear, bleeding. Cauterizing is when you actually yeah, so when you burn and you basically seal up the yeah. the injured area which stops the, the okay. Okay. Mm. And then I am under a train and then I began to think about shit. This is peak hour. This is a really dangerous situation for me. And it was on a bit of a corner. So imagine if a train from the city, the next train, I know in hindsight that the driver who, well, do I know? I mean, he he was fucked. Because you've got to appreciate that he he was aware of something. He he he, I never got to talk to to the driver, Mm. but um, you know he he stopped the train for a reason. And, um, but then I, I'm in a really precarious situation. I'm, I'm torn. I know that I have to, you know, I just need to, I need to do something really, really quickly. So then I, I was talking to her and she was, you know, she understood. And, um, she was about, how old would she have been? Let me think about this. She would have been 35 years old. And then I had to say to her, and I was very, very careful. I didn't want to get too close to her because I was... God, imagine if she had have reached out and grabbed me. Mm. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And I had to be very careful about all the intestines and bone fragments and just everything all all around. It was just, you know, it was a cacophony of fucking body parts. And then I had to extricate myself, but I had to explain to her that I was going to go and get help. Uh, and I'm sure that that was really comforting for her. And um, I then made my way... Sort of, I extricated myself from under the train. Sorry, just quickly, was that all that you said to her? Well, at that stage, but remember, I'm going to go back to the. Okay. I go back to the police car. Yeah. Sort of made my way down the embankment, mm-hmm. and um, and then I had to. I mean, I think I was in a bit of shock. Okay. I had to get. Yeah, my, I'm try- I'm keen to f- figure out what, it, how you felt at the time. Well, I'm still in a relatively professional mode, but then I remember when I grabbed the uh, the radio because I'm the senior man. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't talk. I literally, I didn't. I almost didn't know what to say, to how to explain this terrible situation. And I, it's a bit of a blur for me. But I obviously would have explained location, situation. Let's get a really, really. Let's get all the services here, and let's get this thing happening. And let's, you know, let's let's all do our best to possibly and I still believed at that point that we could save her 
I said to my colleague, I said, look, you wait here. Um, this can sort of, we'll set up a bit of a, this can be the sort of the point where everyone meets because she's still alive. Yeah. And then I scurried back up this uh, embankment, got back under the train. And then what I began to realize is that the railway department were setting up these detonators, they're the explosive devices on the tracks all around the train. Mm-hmm. What happens is if a train's coming, they fire, they run over these detonators, they explode. That's a signal to all trains to stop. So that was comforting. So I began to feel that the situation was at least beginning to sort of take some some form and that I was protected. And I then went back under the train with my torch. It's, it's pitch black now. It's night time. And I could hear sirens coming from and all different types of sirens. So I knew there were fireys, police. It was, it was turning into a massive production. Police yeah. rescue. Um, and, yeah, I, uh, I got back under the train with her and we, uh, you know, I sort of was letting her know that everything was going to be okay. How, how lucid was she? She was, she was good. She was alive. She was conscious. Um, she was scared, um, traumatized. No, it was heavy. No, but how lucid was she given that she was, you know, in two halves? How lucid, how, how lucid could she possibly be? Well, she was conscious and occasionally she was aware of her situation. Okay. She was aware of, um, you know, but I we haven't got to, you know, yeah. how she got there. Yeah. Um, and then I had a friend of mine who was... Funnily enough, um, actually, two two of my mates were actually um, they used to ride. They were not highway patrol, but they had motorbikes, police bikes. Yep. And once the police rescue rocked up, and there were paramedics, and I then backed right off. That's that's not my realm anymore, mm-hmm. and I kind of was happy about that because I could then start to, you know, just sort of get a sense of the entire situation and let all the all the different people work. Now what happened was they needed urgent blood, which is kind of a good thing in that she was alive. She was it's incredible how someone can uh, with such horrific injuries can still be alive and that's the objective of all you know the paramedics and all the emergency services to just go hard and try and keep this person alive. And my two mates were actually conveying they were they were racing to Royal North Shore Hospital and they were bringing back blood, and they were actually doing sort of they were giving her blood while she was underneath the train, and they they stabilised her, and there were all these paramedics and the police rescue were setting up lighting, but what they had to ultimately do once they'd stabilised her is they had to get these almighty jacks underneath the axle and literally lift that part of the train up off her because she was pinned. But she was never going to survive. But that's not what you... You never, ever, ever even contemplate that. When a person is alive, you you just keep working. Okay. And everyone does that. And it, it was just a... This was a, a monumental uh, production. And it was kind of weird for me, Paul, because I was the first on the scene. I'd been with her twice. I'd, I'd spoken to her mm. And then I kind of, in a weird way, sort of just slipped into oblivion where I kind of just, to everyone else working at the scene, I, and obviously they wouldn't even know 
that I had been the first person because the whole machine starts to take over and it becomes a massive production and you, they're setting up emergency lighting and you've got... It, look, it's just a... I reckon there would have been um, probably 30 people involved okay. in, in, in trying to save this woman. And, and at no point would anyone say, uh, you know, you, you, you just don't make that call until life is pronounced extinct. Yeah. And um, they lifted up the, um, the, uh, the axle. Now, I, I, I couldn't stay there, I mean, for lots of reasons, because I was the first at the scene. It was, that was my brief. Yep. So it was my investigation. Who rocks so, up and kind of takes over from that point in a case like well, this? Well, it's not an incredibly complex matter. Right, okay. It's not it's not a it's not a, a murder. Yeah. It's 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 a well, you know, in this particular case, um it was um well at this point in time, while she's still alive, it was an attempted suicide where she had been at a clinic nearby. Yeah. Oh, when did you find this out, by the way? When did you... When did this oh, okay. Well, I didn't know any of that at this stage. Mm. But um, later on that night, when I went back to North Sydney Police Station to start all the... Because I was in charge of the coronial matter. She was still alive at that stage, but then we heard that she'd passed away. Right. And then once she died... And you, went with, died, yeah, you were back at the station when you got that news. You weren't with her, obviously. Yeah, no. So then it became a matter, you know, the the supervising sergeant said to me, okay, John, you know, you've got a, this is your brief. Yep. You're now going to, you know, go follow it through. Okay. And um, so I effectively was kind of in a, in a funny sort of a way, the officer in charge of this particular case. Right. So then it's my job to follow it right through, to go to the morgue, uh, you know, post-mortems and, Everything. So, um, but uh, later on that night, probably around about maybe 9.30, yeah. a sweet elderly man came into the police station <clears throat> through the front door. And, you know, a couple of the police sort of looked up and, he had a sense of that he wasn't from Sydney, right? And and he said, "Oh, um, I'm looking for the um, and now. I'm not going to use the name of this particular place, <clears throat> but it's a particular clinic that's mm-hmm. relatively well known. But I'm I'm not going to name it. And he said, "I'm looking for the such and such a clinic." And that sort of piqued my interest a little bit. And I said to him, "I said, oh, um." You know, are you um, you visiting someone? And he explained that he was from the country and he was coming to Sydney and he got a bit lost and as did and, well, in the 80s, people used to stop at North Sydney Police Station. If they got lost, they'd sort of... Ask um, for directions, yeah. Ask for directions. And um, so I just had this bit of a weird niggling feeling because he seemed kind of... Well, he was just a decent guy. He struck me as being a bit of a sort of a farmer, mm. perhaps a farmer from the bush. And, and then he said something that 
kind of resonated and he said oh look um i'm up here to visit my daughter and she's um she's at the clinic now the clinic is specifically for people who have got some major problems and i hate to say this but a lot of people took their own lives from that particular clinic and a lot of them would because it's not like a prison you're not sort of you're not you're not locked down and a lot of people voluntarily you know admit themselves so they can come and go and this particular place was <clears throat> dare i say it relatively notorious for people um taking their own lives and one of the ways in which people did take their own lives and still do to this day and, and it's a relatively common um method is to jump in front of a train and that's what this girl had done she had yes so she had this... le- left the institution cr- climbed up on the tracks um and just yeah and put herself and got and well we all know what happened to her <clears throat> she passed away that night after incredibly brave and exemplary efforts by all the emergency services and i just had this feeling in my in my bones that this guy was this girl's father and i went up to him and i said look would you come this way and i put him in this kind of room sat him down i then went and spoke to the first class sergeant who was very very up on the entire evening obviously and i just said look this is my 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 feeling i i have a, a strong feeling that this man has actually come to sydney from the country and i have a feeling that the girl under the train yeah was his daughter and um it turned out to be the case so i left it to the first class sergeant and i finished up the shift it was 11 p.m i went home um you know i would have discussed this whole story more than likely with christine in some detail and uh and then just came back to the police station at my next shift i would have um and got involved with all the paperwork um without sounding sort of um, in any way insensitive or or anything like that it was um very much an open and shut case right in terms of policing but still terribly sad and um yeah so you know there are people that um you know do suffer terrible um sort of get involved in terrible situations and whether it be taking one's own life or attempting or a terrible car accident or a or a sort of a hang gliding accident or a fishing accident or a swimming accident or being taken by a shark many many people for a while and sometimes in the arms of emergency services are still alive and um yeah, so the emergency services again, and then you've also on top of that, so that's sort of first responders being there. Um, I When I was in forensics, I got involved in numerous situations where people had taken their own lives by using a train. And generally speaking, 
drains are very um, unforgiving. I think it was a very rare um, and exceptionally unusual experience, the story that I've told and the fact that I was with this particular woman and spoke to her um, was very, uh, I think it was quite unusual. Are you glad that you got to kind of, because my fear, well, I think one of many people's greatest fears is, and I'm going to sound grim, but like dying alone is not something people want to do. Mm. Do you think it was helpful that you were there, even just for a, a little bit? I did my very best to comfort her. Um, I didn't, um, from memory, I, I'm quite sure that I didn't kind of touch her or hold her hand. I couldn't really hold her hands because she was very um, focused on... But I remember the look of terror on her face because she... If I, I, It's very, very uncool, I think, to hypothesise about what she may have been thinking. Yeah. But what I can say is that she had a look of terror um, on her face. Now, whether that would equate to a feeling of regret, I don't know. I mean, it's just so horrific yeah. to think about. And, um, yeah, so that's, um, that's that story, Paul, and that's pretty heavy. <sighs> Jesus Christ. I knew this story was coming. I knew we were kind of reaching this end point where we were going to have to get to the girl under the train, which is... Um, it's one of the stories that you told me that prompted me to uh, pitch this book. Mm. This and the story of the witch, which is coming out quite soon, were the stories mm. which really made me want to tell your stories. Um, I think partly because, you know, whether you sought out to or, or not, you ended up being the person that she, you know, kind of left this world interacting with. And I'm, you know, I'm sure in some way she was glad to have have someone there with her um i don't really know what else to say about this story but i guess yeah jeez sorry that, that i mean that, that that it's pretty upsetting stuff so mm. whew, well i'm gonna have to go and have a sit after that i'm i mean i'm, I'm sitting right now but i'm gonna have to go and kind of process that we hope you're all doing okay if if you found this stuff a little triggering a little upsetting that's completely fine uh we uh, we regularly recommend people reach out to Beyond Blue if you feel like any of this stuff is sort of checking those psychological boxes for you and you need to talk to someone. They're an amazing organization. We highly recommend you reach out to them, uh, Beyond Blue. But otherwise, we're going to kind of go off and dad's going to have to deal with the Sydney lockdown. We're going to talk about that a little bit at the end of the week. We are getting ready for our live show over at the over at the Melbourne Podcast Festival. Hopefully, it's still doable. Hopefully, this nationwide spread of COVID and all these lockdowns and border closures don't affect this this show we've been planning. I know that seems like it's a, a small thing, but honestly, any chance to interact with Dad is a, is a big deal for me because you know I, I miss my family, so that would be very nice. We miss you terribly. So, anyway, thanks so much for telling that story, Dad. I know it's difficult. I'll see you at the end of the week for some loose ends. You up for that? <clears throat> yep. Fantastic. All right. All right. See you guys soon. Bye. Cheerio. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.